Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce this evening's talk by Artrip Evans, which will explore Grant Wood's iconic American Gothic, a painting that is one of the most recognisable and enigmatic images in American art, and one which we are thrilled to have in our galleries on its first ever trip out of America. Artrip Evans is the Professor of Art History at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, where he specialises in the art and architecture of the Americas. He earned his bachelor's degree in architectural history and French literature from the University of Virginia and his graduate diploma in fine and decorative art from Christie's Education London. Professor Evans completed his master's and PhD degrees in in the history of art at Yale University where he held the Henry S. McNeil Fellowship in American Decorative Art. He is the author of two books, Romancing the Mayor in Mexican Antiquity in the American Imagination, and Grant Wood, A Life, a biography that won the American National Award for Arts Writing in 2010. His current book project focuses on the lives of three New England designers from the early 20th century, entitled The Importance of Being Furnished. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Evans. Thank you so much, Amy, and to Adrian Locke, and to everyone here at the Royal Academy who've given me such a warm welcome. Uh, It is really a treat to be here, uh, and uh, a joy to see this show. If you haven't seen the show yet, you are in for such a treat. Uh, Not only are there uh, one, but several very iconic Grant Woods uh, here. There's not a a second-rate Grant Wood to be found anywhere in this show. They are all terrific. Uh, As well as what we like to call uh, kind of pilgrimage pieces, um, works of American art that it gives me goosebumps to see hanging within the same room. Um, If you think about Paul Cadmus's The Fleet's Inn uh, or Charles Sheeler's American Landscape, uh, it is really extraordinary to see these paintings from the 1930s all hanging together. Uh, But we are here for easily the best known uh, and certainly the most enigmatic painting in American art, Grant Wood's American Gothic from 1930. Uh, There's no painting, certainly in America, that has been more reproduced or more parodied uh, than American Gothic. And, And kind of the secret to its fascination, I think, is the contradictory interpretations that always encounter it. Uh, Many believe it to be a tribute to a lost agrarian age. We are looking at a painting from 1930, but the farm technology is actually pre-1900 that you're seeing here, as well as the attire of the the figure, uh, the figures uh, in the painting. It has also been seen as a fictional narrative of a farming uh, pair. Uh, This is uh, due to the model on the left, who was Grant Wood's sister, Nan, uh, who came up with a long fictional narrative about a spinster daughter living with her older father. This was all from Nan, I I will caution you, not from Wood. Uh, Many believed the painting from the beginning, and still today often, to be a satire. Um, And I'm going to read to you a contemporary account from H.L. Mencken, uh, a columnist in the 1930s, who said about this in 1930, about the painting, this is a portrait of two individuals charactered so slightly that it is almost doubly cruel. And although we know nothing of the artist and his history, we cannot help believing that as a youth he suffered tortures from these people who could not understand... (laughs) 
who could not understand the joy of art within him and tried to crush his soul with their sheet iron brand of salvation, they are rather terrible. This notion of satire or homage uh, or even fictional narrative really only tells a tiny bit of the story. Uh, this is a painting that certainly, as the wall text here in the show tells us, uh, it is filled with longing for the past. It is filled for longing for a very specific past, and it is a very specific type of longing, as we'll see. There is a family narrative here, but it is far more complicated than the one that Nan shared in 1930. These two are rather terrible, uh, and yet Grant Wood feared them and loved them too much to satirize them. There is really no precedent for the success of American Gothic. Uh, the story behind its uh, sort of uh, catapulting Wood to fame in 1930 comes with his submission of this painting to the 1930 fall show of the uh, Institute of Art in Chicago. Um, he was really an unknown painter at the time. And uh, we have recently discovered uh, that the painting was rejected initially from the show, a trustee found it and stuck it in the show. Uh, so all could have been changed if that trustee had not uh, had the courage to stick it into the show. There is no precedent uh, in American art uh, for the extraordinary reception that this painting had instantly uh, from its first uh, appearance. On the east and west coasts of the United States, um, there were enormous reproductions uh, uh, printed of this. Um, lots of critics were writing and talking about it. As far away as Berlin, art critics were writing about this painting. Uh, it was hailed initially as something of a kind of national portrait. Uh, and uh, if you look at the, the headline up here, which I love, American Normalcy displayed in annual show, Iowa farm folks hit the highest spot. Uh, the idea was that this was somehow uh, turning the tide of what was seen to be sort of dangerous you know, European modernism that had uh, infected American uh, art scene. Uh, Another critic said, uh, it is one of the finest records of Americana that has ever been painted. And a brochure for the exhibition read, American Gothic is interesting because it is entirely of us. So there was a sense early on that this was some kind of national portrait. But the problem with that interpretation um, and for seeing it as something that was stemming the tide of uh, seemingly pernicious European modernism is that Grant Wood loved Europe. He embraced uh, European modernism uh, as a young painter. Um, and he was certainly not a national figure um, by the time that this was painted. He was an unknown um, kind of country boy who did very well at state fairs, uh, but really had no national reputation prior to this painting. The promotion of this painting as uh, a sort of national portrait was sort of doubled down on by sort of seeing Grant Wood himself as an embodiment of a particular kind of American-ness. So we can see him here left in his trademark overalls. Um, uh, this is one of, I couldn't resist, one of two uh, parodies that I'll show you of American Gothic. Uh, and I'll explain the quarter in just a moment. Um, as early as 1930, critics uh, claimed that Wood himself, in addition to his painting, was, quote, as healthy and genuine as an American hot dog stand. Um, I don't know how healthy American hot dog stands are, but the idea was that he himself was iconic. 
In the mid-1980s, uh, critics uh, uh, who uh, came to the, the show at the Whitney Museum in New York claimed that Wood himself was a paragon of national values. And as late as, as recently as 2004, when the Iowa uh, uh, quarter was unveiled, the US Mint claimed that Wood was a proponent of small town va values, a champion of the American farm, and of plain country folk. So the idea is that you know, he was somehow opposed uh, to foreign influence and to academic sophistication. Uh, the, the problem here is that this so-called farmer painter never farmed. Uh, he w grew up in a, a, a rather large city, as we'll see. Uh, he was professionally trained at the Académie Julienne in Paris, uh, as well as the uh, Art Institute of Chicago. He bristled at small town life and often longed to leave his small town. Uh, and last of all, uh, something that, uh, that really sort of colored much of his life, he spent much of his life not always successfully trying to sort of disguise himself as a, you know, he was a closeted gay man. Um, and in small town Iowa in 1930, this was perhaps the most difficult obstacle he had to face for folks who saw him as a paragon of conservative American virtue and value. Um, the irony, of course, is that in, uh, you know, when you see images like this, which came out during the marriage equality debates uh, in uh, the early 2000s, uh, this parody was used to sort of uh, uh, critique or sort of uh, poke fun at uh, the fact that uh, the state of Iowa, uh, Wood's home state, was the fourth state in the United States to pass marriage equality. But of course, the parody relies on the presumed conservatism of the image. Uh, in fact, as early as 2002, conservative critics wanted to uh, name the proposed conservative federal marriage amendment that would have restricted marriage to uh, heterosexual couples as the American Gothic Amendment. Um, so named because it claimed that Wood himself was a proponent of the bedrock of heterosexual unions. <laughs> So if we look beyond the parodies, um, and I, I'm showing you here a, a wonderful homage that I love uh, by Deborah Sperber, after Grant Wood, American Gothic III, that came out, uh, that uh, an installation from 2011, you encountered this enormous piece, 5,000 spools of thread upside down, and you could only see the painting reconstituted through this kind of crystal ball that reversed the image. I wanted to use this image because when we're looking at American Gothic, we really are looking through a looking glass. Uh, it is an upside down world. Uh, it is a world in which time is both stopped and reshuffled. Um, memory and identity are as fluid as they are in dreams. And it's what lends, I think, this painting, it's really peculiar magnetism. Now, as Wood's biographer, of course, I believe you cannot understand the painting without understanding the painter. Uh, this is my own dog-eared photostat copy of Wood's uh, incomplete uh, uh, autobiography, Return from Bohemia, um, a painter's story, and he signed it here. This source, uh, this small unfinished manuscript, has often been ignored by Wood scholars, uh, primarily for the fact that Wood stops the biography at age 10, uh, or the autobiography <laughs> at age 10. Uh, so many believe, you know, how useful can this really be for understanding his paintings of the 30s? I believe it explains everything about his paintings from the 30s. It is a gold mine. Uh, 
And what we find out uh, is this story of uh, these uh, two pioneering Iowa uh, farmer types. Uh, Iowa, for those of you who have not visited it before, is uh, right in the center of the United States and primarily rural. And certainly Wood's uh, experience of Iowa was very much a rural farm one early on. Uh, his mother, Hattie DeVolson Weaver, was a Presbyterian uh, Sunday school teacher. And his father, Francis, and you pronounce this Mervil Wood, um, and he went by Mervil uh, Wood, uh, was an extraordinarily strict and kind of domineering uh, uh, and profoundly um, religious Quaker. There were four children. Grant Wood was number two. Uh, and uh, to his father's disappointment, early on, Grant Wood had uh, a, a much greater kind of love of gardening with his mother than farming with his father. And we'll talk about that relationship in just a moment. But this is the house where, uh, where Wood grew up and where he really became an artist. His father believed that any form of artwork was connected to fiction. And for him and his Quaker principles, fiction was uh, a kind of sinful endeavor. Um, so reading fiction or drawing were both seen as anathema to his faith. They were also seen, and there's, you know, these are not mutually exclusive, uh, drawing was seen as a feminine activity. So both feminine and sinful, and therefore when Wood was a child, his mother would hide him under the kitchen table with a red checkered tablecloth to hide him during uh, what he called his, uh, his years of his first uh, you know, kind of studio. He claimed that he hid under the table and, quote, gazed out through the arched openings of the checkered tablecloth into the adult world beyond. It was really a sanctuary for him. I also want to, to point out the fact that this house in Anamosa, Iowa, the nearest town had maybe less than 1,000 inhabitants. He claimed that this house was as isolated as if it had been an island on the sea. Um, and therefore, the inhabitants of that house take on almost kind of archetypal power. His mother, his father, the farmhand who lived with them, and uh, certainly his sister Nan, all become these, these players that kind of show up again and again in his work. Now that red checkered tablecloth that you see here, which is, uh, was saved by wood. You can actually see it here. It belongs to the Figgy Museum now. Was saved almost as a talisman of those early years. Um, I'm so happy to see that in the gift shop, uh, red gingham aprons are being sold. Red gingham was very important to wood. Uh, and you can see that here uh, in the saving of this sort of talismanic cloth and his recreation of the kitchen table. This is, in fact, a 1935 recreation by the artist of his original studio, quote unquote. But Wood's relationship with his father was certainly, uh, I think, one of the most important in his life. Uh, lasts just 10 years. His father dies when he's 10. Um, he describes his father as the most majestic, terrible, and remote of persons. He claimed that he was more God than father to me. And if he were a God, he was really kind of an Old Testament God, punitive and, and a little bit frightening. Uh, Wood describes being uh, frequently banished to the cellar uh, and uh, following beatings from his father, one of the charming things he was forced to do was to read to the family aloud from Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> 
really charming childhood, right? Uh, so in 1901, Merville Wood uh, died quite suddenly in the family home. Um, the uh, obituary, actually, uh, uh, the headlines of it say in all caps, dropped dead, period. Uh, <laughs> Merville uh, Wood of Jackson Township is no more. So Wood's world, in some ways, both ended at that moment and began as well. It freed him to become an artist, but it became a moment, as we'll see, that he could never quite uh, uh, escape. Um, we see this in his autobiography, which goes right along to his father's funeral, and for years, for you know maybe uh, seven years uh, of trying to finish the autobiography, he never quite got past that point. Um, in his mature works, we also see an Iowa that exists while Merville is still alive. It is an Iowa primarily before 1901. Now, the move to Cedar Rapids uh, from uh, rural Anamosa meant that he went from having a, a group of about seven uh, on the family farm to a, a really bustling city of about 55,000 um, in 1901. He was a bit of a teenage dandy, uh, an esthete, and uh, very much involved in the arts, um, and openly so, uh, with a very supportive mother. He was really all in as a creative artist, although it wasn't clear yet that he would become a painter. This is an example of one of his exquisite jewelry designs. Uh, he was a, a talented metal worker and jewelry designer. Um, he designed theater sets. He was a, a very enthusiastic amateur uh, actor. And from the age of 13 onwards, he was getting paid commissions for interior decoration. And he continued as an interior decorator really throughout the rest of his uh, career. Now, to make a living he taught McKinley Junior High School. He taught art classes at uh, this junior high school. And you can see Wood. Wood is the standing figure with the tie in the back. Uh, when Wood addressed a, uh, a, a, an assembly of parents uh, in the 1920s, he had this to say uh, about uh, the notion of, of kind of supporting children and the arts. And this is Grant Wood speaking. I was as bashful a child as ever lived. I would pour out all my emotions and longings in a painting. Give a child a piece of paper and he will not ask questions. He will make drawings. This does not mean that he is queer. Expression, contrary to popular notion, is not a mere overflowing of emotions such as crying and screaming. It is a controlled activity involving, and this is important, involving the selection and organization of materials of past experience and their fusion with present situations to create new forms. And we'll see that working out in American Gothic as well as in his other works, that notion of fusing past experience with present situations. Here is where he painted American Gothic, and this is where Grant Wood lived from 1925 until 1935. Um, another somewhat unusual studio. Uh, this was a carriage house behind a funeral home uh, that was used for storing hearses for funerals. So the hearses all uh, parked on the first floor, and he had a studio on the top floor. And this shows a little bit of a sense of Wood's morbid sense of humor. Here he is in a, a a carriage house for hearses. 
And for the front door to his studio, he chose a 19th century coffin lid. Uh, so here is the coffin lid that had a, a kind of viewing window so that whenever he answered the door, his face kind of appeared in the middle of the, the coffin lid. Uh, and it had a dial so he could tell you if he was uh, having a party or taking a bath or you know, at what time he would be back. He also included death masks of living friends uh, as you went down the stairs. So you would sort of pass through this gallery of, of death masks. Here is the studio. Um, and uh, American Gothic was painted in the niche that you see back here. Uh, this was Wood's bedroom. This was also his studio and uh, the place where the Cedar Rapids uh, community players um, staged amateur uh, theatricals, which is why you have the, the sort of stage uh, curtains here. It was a, a space of really ingenious uh, design, uh, only about 700 square feet. It involved a hidden sunken tub, lots of folding furniture, beds that pulled out and could be put away during the day. Um, and as remarkable as that is, he had two roommates, Sister Nan and Mother. Uh, all three of them shared this space. And although there were two other Wood siblings, uh, a younger brother and an older brother, very quickly in Wood's life, uh, his family circle became what he described as we three, which was very much Nan, Mother, and Wood, who all shared this space. Even uh, kind of amazingly, after Nan marries uh, in the mid-1920s, she continued to live with Grant Wood uh, and mother. Uh, her husband, who had tuberculosis, was often hospitalized, so she continued to live with them. Um, American Gothic, uh, after it was uh, uh, created this extraordinary sensation at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1930, inspired equal amounts of curiosity about the man who had created it and about the studio space that he shared with his family. Uh, and a, a columnist, McKinley Cantor, writing in 1930, uh, wrote about that fascination and also gives us a little bit of a window into how open a secret Wood's homosexuality was in Cedar Rapids. He was often described as our own bachelor artist. Uh, so he begins this description of Wood's studio with a title that, uh, over it that says, Grant Wood lives in an alley, uh, meaning Five Turner Alley, where the studio was. And he begins, Grant Wood is a bachelor and lives with a quiet, sweet-faced woman who is his mother. Pink of face and plump of figure, he was most nearly in character one night when he appeared at a costume party dressed as an angel, wings, his mother's pink flannel nighty, pink toes and even a halo supported by a stick thrusting up his back. The front door of his apartment is made of glass, and he's referring to that uh, glass window, but he's making kind of a Snow White reference here, uh, the glass coffin of Snow White awaiting her prince's kiss. The front of his apartment is made of glass, but it's a coffin lid. Boys, come and look him over. So there was this sort of double-edged kind of meanness to the way that uh, uh, Wood's early fame operated, and indeed, uh, not long after, and just months after American Gothic debuted, Wood suffered his first blackmail attempt from a young man uh, we know who, uh, who showed up at the studio. Wood does get out 
uh, from Cedar Rapids. Uh, in 1920, uh, he goes to Paris. Uh, in 1923, he spends about 18 months in Italy uh, and uh, various places in France. And thus began in the 1920s a kind of constant struggle for Grant Wood between um, what he thought of as uh, a kind of bohemian lifestyle abroad um, and his much more constrained life in Cedar Rapids. He learned early on not to uh, confuse these two. And this happened primarily around the beard that you see up above. He came back uh, his, after his first trip to Paris and you know, everyone in Cedar Rapids howled about this beard. Um, the literature surrounding this beard, which was, you know, existed for about a week, is kind of amazing. Um, it was described as flamboyant and flaming, and worst of all, un-Iowan. Um, so he quickly learned, do not confuse Paris with Cedar Rapids. But his early style, as a surprise to many who know Wood's work primarily through American Gothic, was a very accomplished form of French Impressionism. Um, in fact, most of his career he had worked in this style. He really wanted, I, I believe, to be uh, an expatriate American painter living abroad in Paris and out of Cedar Rapids. Uh, later, this style, and you can see here him really trying to turn Iowa into Giverny, uh, this style itself was seen as kind of inauthentic. So if we start to think about where the style for American Gothic comes from, um, I'll, I'll try to, as quickly as I can, go through these kind of three strands of the DNA that lead up to that extraordinary moment of 1930. Um, so the DNA for American Gothic uh, uh, between about 1928 uh, and uh, up to 1930 uh, show a new style a new uh, approach to his subjects, uh, as well as a new psychological complexity in his work um, that is uh, a perfect embodiment of that description I read to you all of taking past experience and fusing it with present conditions to create new forms. So the first I'll show you just quickly is his portrait of John B. Turner, pioneer. Uh, Turner owned the funeral home uh, in front of, of Wood's carriage house. Uh, but what we see here is a profound sense of disconnect between the man as he was known to those in Cedar Rapids and the man that we see here. Um, we know that Turner was a very affable, sweet, avuncular guy. Um, he was known around town as Daddy Turner um, because he was so kind of kind to everyone. You don't really get that from, from this image when you see it. And I believe this was really Wood's first of many attempts to portray his father. Um, the father whose death really left him um, kind of searching for that pre-1901 um, halcyon or frightening period in his life. The affect here is really Merville's. Um, that insistence on his pioneer kind of manliness is, uh, is Merville's. And the substitution that we see here is really important. Uh, across his life, Wood kept talking about wanting to paint his father's portrait. In fact, it was his dying wish in 1942 in his hospital bed. He asked for an easel to be set up so he could at last paint his father's portrait. The closest he ever came was this 1934 image, and this is a detail of the outlined area that you see up above. Uh, this is another one of those paintings that people look at at first and say, oh, he's created a, a charming genre scene. 
It is Giotto's Last Supper, um, sort of seen in an Iowa farmhouse, and his father takes up the position of Christ at the center. We only ever see his father from the back. Furthermore, this is actually the room in which his father died. Um, Wood claims that his father was looking out this window, that the figure is looking out here, uh, when he dropped dead of the heart attack. So it's a little bit more layered than, than uh, you might imagine at first glance. The second strand of American Gothic's kind of DNA is this memorial window that Wood created, a, a, a stained glass window, a new medium for him, uh, for uh, a memorial hall for veterans in Cedar Rapids. And it called for a uh, kind of lineup of American soldiers from the Revolutionary War up through World War I with an allegorical mourning figure up above holding a palm branch and a laurel uh, wreath. The model for the figure of death here, essentially, uh, was his sister Nan, and it was the first time that she had ever posed for him, a very important moment. For her to model as this figure of death, he had her put on their mother's mourning veil that you can see up here um, that was also saved uh, you know, as this very important object of his mother's. Uh, Wood had saved this. Nan's you know, sort of role as a model here and as a muse, wearing Hattie's mourning veil, um, was entirely against their mother Hattie's wishes. She was kind of a superstitious figure. She did not like the idea of her daughter posing in her own mourning veil. Um, but to me, it is a perfect example of the substitution of mother and daughter that we will see in American Gothic, as well as that kind of insistence on that 1901 moment. Now, to make this uh, enormous window. At the time, it was the largest stained glass window in America. Wood uh, was uh, drawn to Munich, which is where it was manufactured. In Munich, Wood claims he had a kind of artistic epiphany. He visited the painting galleries in the Alto Pinacothek, and there, uh, as the story goes, he, his eyes were kind of awakened to northern Renaissance masters, uh, Bruegel, Memling, Van Eyck, and others. He believed that uh, their power drew from painting from their own environment and for using costume as kind of a vehicle often for narrative. And this is the result. When he comes back from Germany, he creates what many believe to be kind of a dress rehearsal to American Gothic. And this is the portrait of his mother, Hattie, woman with plants from 1929. Connected to that epiphany, where the, the kind of scales fall from his eyes at the Alto Pinacothek as he's looking at Memling and, and Van Eyck and others, is his physical return to Cedar Rapids when, as Wood told it, he came through the front door and saw mother standing in the kitchen wearing her rickrack apron and holding a plant. And he said, you know, stop it right there. I'm going to paint your portrait. Uh, it feels very apocryphal, but certainly this is the first work that he created uh, after that return from Germany. And certainly you can see uh, the connection to uh, those uh, northern masters that he admired, the local landscape, the intense sense of observation, and the use of contemporary dress, although I will say that this was rather old-fashioned dress already by 1930. He was also very much interested in emblematic details, so take a look at that cameo here, what he called 
decorative adventures within paintings. Jewelry was always key to him. Uh, and this is actually a brooch that he brought Hattie back uh, from Italy in 1924. He always referred to it as the Persephone brooch. You can see uh, Persephone identified by the pomegranates in her hair uh, and the, the sort of disheveled look to her. Um, it is unclear whether it was intended to be Persephone, but it is more important that Wood believed it to be connected to the myth of Demeter and Persephone, the mother who is uh, you know, sort of aching for her departed daughter. So the key to understanding this painting, and then as we'll see with American Gothic, is to see the way that that allegorical layer plays into these portraits. Far from just being a simple portrait of a farm woman, um, this is a portrait that shows his mother as a mourning figure, his mother as uh, both a widow and someone who is mourning a child. Um, the fact that she's wearing the, the brooch right where you would put a mourning brooch as well um, is, is significant. So she is mourning in reality for, uh, the, for the dead figure of Merville, um, but also in a mythological sense. Uh, that fall landscape behind her associates her with Demeter just as much as an image of Persephone does. Uh, and I would argue that the missing child in this case really is Grant Wood himself. Um, he often talked about his mother not wanting him to sort of take off to Paris, um, leaving her behind. Now, this use of mythological allegory is something that Wood had done uh, several times uh, prior to the creation of American Gothic. This is his Adoration of the Home from 1921. So you can see he did occasionally work in a much more realistic, naturalistic style um, in which we can see a sort of modern version of Demeter or Ceres here with the, the corn stock. He also created decorative panels for a neighbor's home. This was one of his interior decoration schemes in which the, the myth of Demeter and Persephone also played out on the door. And, and keep in mind, too, the location of where this was painted. He painted his mother sitting in the bay window, looking out on uh, what was basically the viewing room for the funeral home, where the bodies were laid out. So it's not just a funereal landscape because it's a fall landscape. He, you know, she was actually sitting in front of uh, a funeral home. In, in many ways, this is the sort of path that leads to American Gothic, a kind of dress rehearsal, as I've said. When Wood was offered by the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art um, a fairly substantial sum for an unknown artist uh, to, to purchase Woman with Plants, Wood claimed, I can never part with it. It was his favorite painting. He said, it was a gift to my mother. It can never be sold. Hattie said, sell it. You can always make another one. Uh, spoken like a, a, a nervous mother. Uh, so she uh, allowed uh, the, the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art to, uh, to purchase it. And I firmly believe that in the following year, as Wood worked out how to paint another, this is uh, sort of how we, we get to American Gothic, or at least it's one of the avenues. He did add a male figure um, to the portrait here. Um, his dentist, Byron McKeeby, stood in for this figure. Um, but he had originally very much wanted Hattie to pose for this painting. So this was really going to be his recreation of his mother's portrait with uh, some new compositional elements. 
When Hattie refused to sit for this painting, Nan was Wood's natural second choice. So that's what led right away to this bizarre pairing um, that has ever since led people to kind of scratch their heads when they look at this painting wondering, is it a May-December romance? Uh, is it a spinster daughter? Uh, Nan came right out with her narrative about exactly who this woman was and who the father was. Uh, Wood really remained silent and in fact contradicted himself. At one point he did say this figure was a wife. In another instance, he claimed she was a daughter. But if you keep in mind that superimposition of Hattie and Nan, she is a wife and she is a daughter. Uh, it is a very complicated substitution. Never again did Wood uh, kind of recreate the same elements for a sitter from transposed from one image to another. So you can see the rickrack apron that was his mother's, again, a very old-fashioned thing that Nan herself would not have worn. The cameo, you can see, comes right across here. And you have to sort of squint to see it, but there is the Sansevieria plant, um, sometimes called mother-in-law's tongue or snake plant, that Hattie is holding, and the begonias that are at her elbow show up here as well. So they, they make, and I'm, I'm sorry to make this terrible pun, they make a cameo appearance uh, here uh, next, next to Nan. So if Hattie inspired the original sort of uh, notion of this woman in a rickrack apron with this uh, uh, cameo. The house, in some ways, inspired the composition. Uh, on a sketching tour in Eldon, Iowa, an area uh, even more remote than his, uh, his hometown as a child of Anamosa, Eldon then as now, uh, I think, has about three to 400 inhabitants, um, a tiny town. Uh, Wood was on a sketching tour with Ed Rowan, who was the director of the Cedar Rapids Little Gallery, when they came across this house and kind of discovered it. The house itself is designed in what is described architecturally as American Gothic, or sometimes Carpenter Gothic. It's a form of Gothic revival, and so the, the style of the house gave him the idea for the, the title. Uh, it was built uh, by the Dibble family, owned by others when, when Wood saw it. But he came back and sketched it the very next day. This is a very small sketch that he did uh, of the house. And he was particularly drawn to the window um, that you see above that porch. He found it comically overscaled for this tiny little house. And indeed, when you see it in person, you really do notice that. He claimed that this particular type of house was emblematic, as he said, of, quote, he said, our cardboardy frame houses on Iowa farms are especially suggestive of the Middle West civilization. A little bit of a, uh, of a secondhand or sort of uh, um, snide compliment to the, the American farmhouse. He was drawn to this idea of puffed up self-importance of an enormous Gothic window on this tiny little house. And it, it really is enormous. Let me show you. There's a, a detail of it. And there I am on the inside. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big feature. Um, it is believed to have been ordered from a Sears catalog um, and stuck on the house. Uh, but it really is the kind of main event in terms of the design of the house. It is hard to ignore the links between this Gothic window 
And Wood's earlier fascination with Gothic windows and doorways in France, a good example of that, and a wonderful example of what an accomplished Impressionist painter he was, um, is his yellow doorway, Saint-Emilion, from 1924. In 1926, Wood had a, a, a fairly comprehensive show in a Paris gallery, um, Gallery Carmine, in which he showed almost exclusively Gothic windows and Gothic doorways. So this was an, an early fascination for him. And keep in mind, too, remember that first studio under the kitchen table where he said, I loved looking out through the arched openings um, of the red checkered tablecloth. So for him, there is a totemic quality to these uh, Gothic windows. And here we can see uh, the sketch is tiny. The sketch is about this big um, for the you know, uh, initial version of American Gothic. Wood claimed to a reporter that, quote, I simply invented some American Gothic people to stand in front of an American Gothic house, and claimed that there was going to be a pendant drawing uh, or a pendant painting in which he showed kind of squatter, more horizontal people in front of a mission-style house from the beginning of the 20th century. He never completed the second one. But true enough, if we think about his stated intentions, the couple are long and drawn out. All of the lines really sort of bring you back to uh, the, the vertical quality of that window. But Wood's initial intentions for this work, um, as almost always for a landscape or a portrait or a genre scene, almost always get away from him. This new, slow, methodical style of um, painting uh, almost brought out a, a kind of complexity. He sort of falls down these rabbit holes that he can't quite get out of. Because if you think about the house here, there is also a distinct similarity to the house in which he had been raised as a little boy. Um, it doesn't have the Gothic window, but it certainly has that uh, peached, uh, uh, peaked roof at the center. And also, uh, you'll see almost identical porch columns that you see between the original house uh, and the one in American Gothic. Because it bears such similarity to the house in Anamosa, I think it bears uh, uh, reading to you just a, a quick um, observation by Wood in his autobiography about the house in Anamosa. Right where the autobiography falls off, he's, they've just buried his father, and he can kind of write no more. He talks about leaving that house as a child, and he says, I remember the house standing bleak and frightening, its windows like a man without any eyelids. It's a creepy evocation of this house, and it, it makes you realize that uh, the house is really kind of the third character um, in this painting. Um, all of those Gothic ideas of kind of secrets in the attic, what's behind that window, are conjured here uh, and really are inseparable from his childhood. So it's easy to, easy to understand, in a sense, why Hattie refused to stand for this painting, why she refused to model for it. Imagine for a moment if Hattie had stood in rather than her daughter, how different a painting this would have been. Um, I think how less complex um, it would have struck people. Um, standing in front of a house that Hattie would have recognized is similar to the one she'd shared with her dead husband, and standing next to a kind of age-appropriate model, standing in for you know, a living version of her dead husband, uh, understandably made her a little bit squeamish. Uh, because she realized early on that 
we're really, again, in some ways, uh, looking at uh, a kind of resurrected form of Merville. Once again, here, there's a real disconnect between model and representation. Byron McKeeby, who was the, model, the dentist model for this figure, was uh, mild-mannered, congenial, congenial uh, rather a small fellow, um, kind of afraid of his own shadow. Um, you don't see that here again. Um, the American Gothic figure is confrontational, larger than life. This is that Old Testament God uh, come to life. Now, to give you a sense of, it is a close uh, representation. There's Byron uh, at left, recognizable visibly uh, with his, his representation, but there's a very important uh, difference here. He's wearing the wrong glasses. I don't know if you all can see, his glasses are actually octagonal in shape here. It seems like a tiny, picky detail, but Merville's glasses were round, like the ones that you see here. And how do we know this? because Wood saved them like a holy relic. It's the only thing of his father's, the only personal item of his father's that he saved, and you can see them here. Um, you may wonder why there are two pairs here. The second pair, uh, just before Wood completed American Gothic, he had a copy of his father's glasses made for himself. Um, and that's what you see here uh, in his rather wary-looking self-portrait, begun in 1932 and remained unfinished at the time of his death. Now, the glasses, the glasses here uh, sort of beg the question, uh, you know, where is this figure looking? And I think this is another reason why American Gothic is as unnerving as it is. Uh, the female figure is not quite looking at the male figure, and everyone thinks the male figure is looking at themselves. But on closer inspection, you realize he is looking just to, you know, the side of the viewer which in a way is kind of unnerving. He, he kind of doesn't acknowledge your presence. And in fact, Wood wrote about his father that in his remote detachment, he was, quote, always looking away. He includes at least three different instances in his autobiography when he was in the same room with his father and his father failed to even sort of know that he was in the room with him. He was kind of invisible. So we see that invisibility with the way that his, his gaze is averted. His mother's gaze and that of his sister here is, of course, of loving resignation. Uh, and, and together, you know, they're kind of perfect pendants. Uh, pendants both in the way that he's sort of thinking about these women in, in similar ways, but also, and I think more importantly, from an allegorical perspective. So Nan, once again, is wearing the Persephone brooch here. And if Hattie is the grieving Demeter in her portrait, here we see Nan as Persephone herself. It's an even closer match. In fact, if you take a look at that one little snaky strand of hair coming down behind her bun, uh, it, it sort of echoes the hair that you see here, which, you know, sort of uh, in a roundabout way refers to Persephone's, often in, in images of Persephone, her hair is kind of undone from the abduction into Hades. It is also an element that makes her kind of snaky in a way, a sort of Medusa 
element. And in fact, people wrote to Iowa newspapers uh, in the 19, uh, after the 1930 debut saying, this is a face that would sour milk, sort of a Medusa <laughs> look. Um, another wrote and said the figure of Nan was clearly uh, an example of humanity's missing link. Uh, sort of deeply unfair. And I have to say, I really thought it was going to be a challenge to, I was told earlier that this is the room in which Charles Darwin first expounded the, the origin of the species. Uh, and so I had to get an evolutionary joke in there somewhere. So that's, that's Nan as the, as the missing link. And of course, here is Hades with his pitchfork, a double pitchfork, in fact, He's holding one, and then the second one is on his chest. It's the, uh, it's the seams for his overalls. So if she is queen of the uh, upper world with the plants on her shoulder, he has this bright red barn behind him. The barn is an addition. The barn did not exist uh, in the original house. So if we think about the meaning of the allegory in this case, is Nan Persephone, I actually feel once again we've got Wood sort of uh, playing the role of uh, the child who has made an incomplete return home. Uh, he both cannot escape kind of 1901 uh, and the shadow of his father, um, and he can only spend part of his time uh, abroad, part of his time in, in Iowa. Now this kind of gender reversal, the idea of uh, imagining uh, himself, say, in a female role, is something that we uh, can see in other examples in his work. So Ed Rowan, who he first uh, you know, saw American Gothic with, or the, the house, I should say, uh, is here portrayed in drag uh, in uh, appraisal. It was kind of a revenge uh, for complicated gallery politics that were going, going on at the time. Um, but he does it here as well. This is in the exhibition and fantastic. Uh, Daughters of Revolution, in which we can see the kind of smug members of the Daughters of the American Revolution, this kind of elite American group of women descended from officers uh, who served in the American Revolution. Uh, in the back is Emanuel Leutze's 1851 painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware, here shown in a kind of foxed and faded print. The idea is that the, the heroism of Washington's history has devolved into a, a tea party of little old ladies. And, and I can't take credit for this. Carol Ann Marling, a great Wood scholar, was the first to write about it. He includes George Washington in drag here at left uh, as the sort of, uh, to complete the joke. And the third one I'll show you, a wonderful campy recreation of a Victorian wedding portrait uh, in which we can see Grant Wood uh, and his regionalist comrade, Thomas Hart Benton, who has several paintings in the show, um, here underneath uh, a needlepoint, home sweet home. Uh, and there they are. Thomas Hart Benton, I don't believe, was in on the joke here. Uh, by 1935, of course, Thomas Hart Benton, John Stuart Curry, and Grant Wood had been kind of crowned members of the American Regionalist Triumvirate, which was in some ways kind of an artificial 
uh, movement in American art, uh, which began in, at a 1933 show that was mounted by their dealer, uh, who was trying to pull together these artists who prior to that time were unacquainted with one another um, into what he believed to be a kind of coherent movement. It became that more after 1933, uh, but it was a movement that was believed to be uh, a kind of bulwark against what was perceived to be, and these are their dealers, uh, their dealer's word, um, a bulwark against the limped limp-wristed men of the left bank. So the idea was that these were red-blooded, you know, uh, American men uh, who were uh, sort of standing up against what was seen as effete modernism. So this is where he gets the title for his autobiography as well, Return from Bohemia. The idea is that he is rejecting all of the left bank, you know, sort of Parisian adventures that he'd had. Uh, and 1935 is the year that he, he takes that up and, and creates this cover image uh, for Return from Bohemia. Uh, this is anything but a happy return. Uh, you can see uh, one uh, viewer of this, when they saw this pastel for the first time, said it should be called Return from the Funeral. Uh, you can see you know, sort of dowel, dour expressions. He's back, but he seems you know, kind of almost doomed. Uh, and it's really kind of a coda to American Gothic. We can see here the conflation, once again, of people and memory. Uh, we have Nan in her gingham at left here. Hattie up above from his present life. This is Wood himself in overalls as a little boy. Ed Rowan, the gallery director who may well have had a romantic relationship with Wood standing behind. And here's Daddy Turner, once again from Turner Pioneer, sort of standing, kind of looming over him. So in the midst of, uh, of 1935, when he's writing uh, this autobiography, uh, is really kind of a shattering year for, for Wood. In 1935, Nan leaves the house uh, and finally moves with her husband out west. Hattie enters her last and clearly fatal you know, uh, illness uh, in Cedar Rapids in 1935. His two bedrocks uh, are really disappearing. And in 1935, as his mother lay dying, he shocked everyone in Cedar Rapids by marrying this woman. Uh, this is Sarah Sherman Maxson, uh, a good bit older than Wood, and left people in Cedar Rapids uncomfortably making comparisons between her appearance and that of Hattie. Uh, Sarah makes uh, no uh, bones about living over a, you know, a carriage house. She decides immediately they have to move to Iowa City, which was another big change for him. And in the midst of all of that change, whoops, he paints Death on the Ridge Road, which is also in the show. Wonderful image that in the show uh, is contextualized with Wood's sense of impending dread due to the rise of fascism. I think it also, and, and more palpably, has to do with kind of his personal crises around this period, the death of his mother, his marriage to Sarah, uh, and his increasingly hostile working environment at the University of Iowa, where from 1935 until his death in 1941, there was a bit of a witch hunt after him to remove him from the faculty due to his relationship with his personal secretary, uh, Park Reinhardt. This is a real place. This is me nearly killing myself, taking a picture uh, around the Ridge Road. Uh, and I think it's important to point out, when you see the painting, uh, this, is the same, this is just a year after he paints his father as Christ in the center of that Last Supper tableau. 
And you can see the telephone poles, one, two, and then the third in the background, create a kind of Golgotha on, on a hill uh, on top of, uh, of this ridge road. Um, I used it for the, the cover of my biography, uh, partly because these collisions he was always forestalling. Um, this was the first biography of Wood to appear since 1944. And the reason for that is that the 1944 biography of Wood was written by uh, a former student from the University of Iowa who knew of the, the kind of taint, the taint of scandal surrounding Wood on the faculty there. Um, several times he suggested Wood's homosexuality in this. Uh, and you can see in Nan's copy, I don't know if you all can read this, this is Nan's copy of Arts in Iowa, by Daryl Garwood, who wasn't fit to spit on, the worst liar on earth. Uh, she banned no less than seven would-be biographers of Woods uh, through legal action. Um, but as soon as he died, she enthusiastically took up her role as the kind of living embodiment of American Gothic. So this is the 1942 memorial exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she asked a very reluctant Byron McKeeby to pose with her. He hated being associated with this painting. Um, and you can sense that in his, in his body language. The poor guy, when he finally died in the 1950s, the first line of his obituary was, Byron McKeeby, the model for American Gothic, comma, um, and Nan begins kind of a full-time job as her you know, sense of embodiment of what she called America's, you know, being America's Mona Lisa. Uh, she sued, you can see her here in the 60s, actually holding the pitchfork at a wax museum. Uh, so this, these are wax figures. This is her with the painting itself uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and this is in the 1970s in her own home where she had countless reproductions of the painting. Um, she often, when people parodied uh, American Gothic, sued for personal defamation. This is how closely she felt associated with it. So I don't want to give the final word. I, mean, I, I know I'm, I'm going along here, but I don't want to give the final word to uh, Wood's very protective sister, Nan. Um, remember Sarah Sherman uh, Maxson, who I, I showed just a moment ago, Wood's wife of just about three years. They were married 35 uh, to 38. When I was uh, finishing the book, my editor asked me to please find out in the epilogue what happened to all the people in Wood's life. Nobody knew what had happened to Sarah. I was desperately trying to find just at least an obituary for her. Um, I finally found something from her estate in a bookstore in, on the west coast of the States. Uh, and they said, you should really talk to Ed Bartholomew. He was her landlord, and he's always walking around town with Sarah's memoirs, Sarah's diaries, Sarah's letters. And I, my jaw dropped, and I sort of I made it quickly across the country. There's Ed. Uh, much older when I met him, obviously, and there's uh, Sarah, the ex-wife, in 1968. The reason why this was so important to the book is that I found out sort of why they had been attracted to one another. Their backgrounds really almost mirror one another. She was a tomboy. Uh, she uh, was, uh, you know, kind of a, a child who was raised by a, a very sort of brutal mother who wanted her to be the young lady that she couldn't be. She longed to get out of Cedar Rapids. Uh, and she uh, ex says in her memoirs about Wood, for the, after their marriage, for the first time in his life, he felt free to tell someone of his boyhood and the days following his father's death. She's the only contemporary to make the link that close. 
His stories held a great appeal to me, she said, for I knew that in telling them he was unburdening his soul of a lifelong habit of keeping things that hurt him to himself. And certainly his paintings are indicative of that attitude. She makes the direct link from that quote to seeing the father in American Gothic. She you know, immediately recognized it. She also began her own biography of Wood um, never completed, in which she began, and again, this is really kind of, uh, was kind of a goldmine to find. She says, considering the task before her, perhaps we should let him alone, let him rest on his painting alone. On the other hand, it has never done an artist, in the long run, any great disfavor to know all about him. Oscar Wilde's genius, interesting choice, uh, runs just as purely and clearly today as if the world did not know how he spent his last years or the reason behind his final degradation. There is some parallel here, as we shall see. She stops there. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it gives you a sense of her sense of who he was. Now, if I just end on our upside-down, right-side-up image uh, again, uh, I just wanted to say that you know, when we see Wood's work, uh, we need to always see it in, in light of his life. It is too facile to see this painting as just a satire of Midwestern yokels or as just a hymn to family life of yesteryear. We need to understand how, why, and for whom we feel uneasy when we stand before this work, often against our own wishes. And it's that sense of uneasiness, that sense of discomfort, not knowing whether to giggle or shiver when you stand in front of this painting that makes it the masterpiece that it is. Thank you very much. I know we've gone long, but I'm, I'm happy to entertain questions. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, you gave a really intricate uh, personal portrait about Wood. Um, I was always thinking throughout this more about the socioeconomic background of, you know, this uh, massive country, America, going through its, its first uh, economic crash in the late 20s, and obviously that reflecting in artwork, in literature, and in cinema, and how, how this was almost a moral you know, the first uh, bump in the ride along America's uh, dream. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know about your opinion about how Wood received and experienced the, uh, the economic downturn in the early 30s. Well, it's, it's interesting that when you look at Wood's farmscapes, for example, and there are a couple of good examples of those upstairs, uh, um, young corn and fall plowing, what is remarkable about Wood's landscapes is that in a time of tremendous turmoil for American farmers, droughts, farm strikes, the Dust Bowl, you never see that in his paintings. Um, he almost emphatically turns his back on you know, the, the kind of turmoil of the time. And I think the same is true of the Depression to a certain degree. I think it became um, uh, a painting that people projected notions of American, uh, you know, the American ability to rise above adversity. Um, but certainly when he painted it in 1930, uh, he had 
absolutely no national profile. Later, when he's dubbed kind of America's painter, he really does, I think, more self-consciously think about himself in national terms and national themes. But when he's painting this, um, as you've seen, I mean, he is going through some very complicated things uh, that, uh, that, from my perspective, have far more to do with his family than with, um, say, the economic depression. Any affiliation to the Arnold Finney couple? Well, he was, he was a, a great fan of Van Eyck's work. Um, I don't know that there's like a direct cor correlation between, say, uh, the Arnold Finney marriage uh, and this painting. Um, certainly there is a feeling of um, uncanniness when you look at both of them. Um, but as much as I can say about that is that he knew Van Eyck's work and he would almost certainly have known the Arnold Finney marriage. Elongation of the figures, something about the composition something about the subject. You're right, and they're very mannerist figures. And so the sort of mannerist, uh, you know, uh, kind of uncanny naturalism that you see in Van Eyck's work, you do see in his work as well. One thing that's always intrigued me is what is the significance of the spike above the tree line just to the left of Nan's head? That's the church. That's, the, that's supposedly the church in town. Um, but, but do American churches have spikes like that? They I've do. I've always seen them as... They yeah. do, and it's led to endless speculation of, is this really in the country, or is it a village scene? Um, I, don't, I didn't point it out, but you remember that small pencil sketch? He's not holding a pitchfork in that. He's holding a rake, which would have been much more associated with you know, kind of tools that you would use in a slightly more urban context rather than, you know, pitching hay. Here you see the kind of survival of a notion of village life with this isolated farmhouse. So it is a strange inclusion. A, a spire of that type would have signaled to audiences that this wasn't as remote as we might imagine. I'm looking at the painting. I don't know whether it's me or that's the painting, but one is in technicolor, blue skies, denim, the other one in sepia. Mm -hmm. um, I've looked at this painting so many times for many years, and I almost assumed it was just a, a Swedish couple that came <laughs> to emigrate to America to uh, be independent farmers. I've almost assumed that it was his wife. But mm -hmm. tell me, is it me or is it a painting? I mean, one is sipping at the other is... Oh, I should, I should explain. That's, that's my own little mannerist conceit just for this talk. Uh, you, what you're seeing on the right for the unvarnished talk is uh, the painting as it, as it does appear. Uh, the, the sort of sepia that you're seeing on the left, I, I confess, the Art Institute of Chicago would probably have a heart attack if they knew I was showing this image. It, it looks sort of clean and, and sparkly like you see it here on the right. This was just my own conceit for the talk. But seeing sort of Swedish descendants, I think there is a, a Norwegian strain in his family. Um, certainly there were lots of uh, um, Scandinavian immigrants in this part of the United States. Thank you for a fantastic talk. Mm -hmm. So were you saying that the show that he had with the Impressionist paintings of the French architecture was later in the 30s? No, it was 1926. Oh, earlier. Okay, because yeah. I was just wondering, did, uh, did he ever revert in any of his work to that kind of Impressionism? Or once he'd had a kind of success with this more hard-edged... Because um, I'm fascinated by the kind of 
the the excitement in America about this kind of hard-edged way of painting as being somehow a signifier of Americanness and and modern American modernity, and I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about about Grant's the, the, the role that played in Grant's understanding of himself and his painting, if he'd been such a keen impressionist previously. Sure, uh, he was he was a devoted impressionist for the 19 teens and the 1920s. Uh, he begins to experiment a little bit in this style even before going to Germany. Obviously, uh, John B. Turner, pioneer, was in that earlier, harder style. Um, but what's fascinating to me is that once he uh, sort of turns to this style, he never really looks back. He never returns to his early Impressionist style. And I gather that has as much to do with the positive reinforcement that he got for the switch than for a personal predilection. There was an idea that he was being celebrated for exactly this style and exactly these kinds of subjects. So it's kind of this devil's bargain for him, really, because he, he spends his whole life, please, please, please let me get out of Cedar Rapids and live in Paris and be an expat painter. Uh, and of course, you know, you can imagine how well a 1926 show by an American Impressionist went over in Paris. Uh, he, nobody was paying any attention to him. But the minute he started painting in this style, and certainly with this painting, he was seen as a paragon of American uh, you know, sort of realism and hardness. It's a, it's these, this painting is described in the strangest ways in 1930. Um, one critic says, Wood is calling us back to a hardness. He is calling us back to a flinty, difficult, hard style uh, that is uh, more true to who we are as Americans um, and true uh, to uh, certainly nothing uh, I have read about Wood um, leads me to believe that he intended that in terms of his style. But he never goes back to Impressionism. Um, impressionism actually was later sort of very much gendered female um, as a style. And so it was something that he avoided like the plague uh, in the mid-30s. Thomas Hart Benton, John Stuart Curry, and others talked about Impressionism as the kind of loose, unformed brushstrokes of an untrained woman um, was the idea, um, you know, forgetting the history of Impressionism. Uh, but uh, yeah, he very much distanced himself from that period. And critics in our own time claim that he was a terrible Impressionist. They say, oh, he gave it up because he was terrible at it. He was actually quite accomplished. It just didn't work for him. It seems to me that this is a painting largely framed by persistent misconception. How do you think that arose? Do you think it's just the nature of the image? Or do you think it was a sort of a cultural need for that kind of image? Or what is it about this painting that means that it is so often misunderstood? Well, I think that in, in 1930, as you find in the US today, there were quite polar, you know, sort of deeply divided uh, critical camps uh, who wanted to see what they wanted to see in it. Um, so sort of sophisticated New York critics thought, finally, someone is making fun of those rubes out west that we you know, refuse to be associated with. And the Midwesterners said, finally, someone is sticking up for us against those awful, you know, affected, you know, Easterners. And I think it's because nobody quite knew where to pin him down on this that it was able to kind of survive in both camps miraculously. Um, it never uh, achieved kind of a definitive 
uh, you know, place in terms of that. People are still arguing, is it a satire uh, or is it not? Um, and of course, as his biographer, I've been, you know, yelling since 2010, it's neither, it's neither of these things. Um, but that answer is a lot more complicated and I think complicated answers to things often have less traction. Thank you very much for Thanks. your questions. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.